This one's for you, Boston. Boston's a different city than it was 20 years ago. The hope rises again, and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder. This is our f***ing city. Hello everyone, welcome to the Boston Podcast. If you recognize that eerie music playing below my voice, you uh, have, are probably a fan of the Netflix documentary series, Making a Murderer, which you haven't, if you haven't heard about it, if you haven't uh, watched the whole thing, you probably feel behind. If you haven't heard about it, you've probably been trapped under something heavy for the past uh, couple months, but this is a special edition of the Boston Podcast. I'm your host, David Yaz, per usual, hope you're doing well. And we have assembled a, a crack panel of legal experts here today to talk about making a murder. And I only say that like partially sarcastically because they actually are friends of mine. Um, so how expert could they be? However, this is who we have. First, Randy Chapman. If you watch New England Cable News, you probably know him as a legal expert on NECN. They don't call it NECN, do they? Sometimes. Sometimes? Do you call it NECN? No. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. NECN, uh, frequent frequent contributor to the newscast there on NECN. Randy has his own criminal law practice on the North Shore, one of the most prominent criminal defense attorneys in the state. He's won awards. He's been chairman of this, chairman of that. He's just awesome. Randy, thank you for being here. My pleasure, David. The crowd, oh, the crowd is going crazy. And we also have attorney Robert Mazo of the law firm of Mazo and McCullough, also up on the North Shore. Um, thank you guys for coming all the way down to Boston today. Appreciate that. So uh, Rob has a practice that primarily concerns uh, disasters and injuries, personal injuries, accidents, medical malpractice. Yes, a little bit. Any dog bites? Plenty of dog bites. Mm, good. Yeah. Good to have the dog bites. Yeah. Um, and uh, but also a, a former prosecutor, correct? Right. That is correct. You guys are both both Essex County prosecutors. That's at right. At some point. Wow. Yeah. At the same time? No, different yeah. times. Randy's a. Uh, years older than I am. A few. Oh. Yeah, too bad. So, um, uh, you got to learn I'm quick with the buttons over here. So, um, but listen, we want to talk about uh, making a murder. Before we get into so, like some of the real cool like aspects of this that I feel like you guys might have extra insight into, let's just talk about why we're all so obsessed with this. I mean, it, it um, to me, it comes on the on the heels sort of of the Serial podcast, which which uh, also the NPR podcast, which was such a hit, which also involves someone maybe falsely accused of a crime. Who, who knows? The, the people would suggest that there are still a lot of doubts around that case. This one, why why is it so fascinating? Why do we love it? This one Robert. hit. A, this one hit a nerve. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I watched. I listened to the serial podcast. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was well done. But it did not have the compelling traction that uh, this Netflix program seemed to have. I don't know uh, whether it was at the right time or that the public seemed to gra I, I, gra I grab there, onto it. Yeah. I think there was, you know, from a from a general public standpoint, uh, it was the did he do it, didn't he do it kind of analysis. Mm. Within the legal community, it's caught fire because I think people are interested in the process and what went possibly awry here. Did he have a fair trial? Uh, was there motivation for people to set him up? There were so many other subplots to it from a legal standpoint 
that I thought were, from my view, were yeah. a lot more fascinating. So were you, were you watching it thinking, thank God our system isn't like that, or I hope our system is never quite like that, because the 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 running joke is that you watch the show screaming at the TV, going, what, can they do that? Can they do that? That guy, the cop is clearly lying, that sheriff is clearly biased. Did you, did you, was it eye-opening like that for you, Randy, being in the courts all the time? I think that to the extent that, the, that he was set up, if people believe that he was set up, then I think that that is, in large extent, aberrational. Yeah. I think that it does happen. I think it's rare that it happens. But when you see it happen in a way in which they portrayed it, it was shocking and disturbing. The possible manipulation of science, you know, we've put so much weight in DNA these days that we look at it and say, our system is now approaching being foolproof. And the reality is, is it's only good as the players. And if somebody is planting physical evidence, the fact that it ties back to this defendant doesn't prove anything more other than that was his blood. Right. So um, I think we've seen recently over the past several years as well that there's been instances of chemists not doing what they were supposed to do, problems within the FBI labs. And so this is really an outgrowth of that that causes us all and reminds us all that we need to be skeptical of the system, that you cannot blanketly accept something that somebody has said just because they're in a position of power. You mean like I, I just found this incriminating key that uh, happened to be my seventh trip into the van that uh, so the, the key piece of evidence against Stephen Avery happened to be just it's just sitting there so perfectly in that photo of the key. It was, it was like it couldn't have been more perfect dead yeah, center. And we missed it the first seven times yeah. we came through. Yeah, Did, I, I think what, what well, that was a, the, after the sixth search, I think. But so I think whatever, yeah. Randy's talking about the, the, the sort of science of it. I thought one yeah. of the most, most uh, jaw-dropping parts of the series was the DNA expert during the murder trial where she's you know dropping pieces of her own DNA over the uh, over the samples that she's testing I think it's it's outrageous right. that we would see, you know in this day and age we would see something sort of as sloppy as that which would contaminate and yet they still allowed her testimony and her evidence to come in it was it right was, it was, you know there was an old saying um, I think it was I want to say it was from Effley Bailey's uh, book I think it was uh, the defense never rests and he said there are three rules about You're not the supposed to read F. Lee Bailey's book. You're just supposed to go get him to sign it and put it on your shelf, Randy. But go ahead. You're the one who read it. Go ahead. And it I, says, uh, I think it was his book. It was yeah. either him or, uh, or Alan Dershowitz. But it was uh, they, there were three rules, of course. The first rule was that all cops lie. The second rule is um, that, well, let me rephrase it. There are, there are three rules. <laughs> I forget the first one. But one of them is all cops lie. And the other one was that judges believe them anyways. And I don't really think that's necessarily the case. I yeah. think that most cops do tell the truth. Um, but we still should be aware that it can happen. And we should always look at any evidence that is being offered in a skeptical manner. So let's uh, let's go back and set the stage. And if you, if you uh, want a quick refresher on it, we're going to play the, the intro to the series. Let's return and remember why we loved uh, making a murderer so much. Here it is. The people that were close to Steve knew he was always happy, happy, happy. Always wanted to make other people laugh. <laughs> they didn't dress like everybody else. They didn't have education like other people. The Avery family didn't fit into the community. Stevie did do a lot of stupid things, but he always owned up to everything he did wrong. I think I had a good life until all the trouble started. 
Penny Bernstein was everything that Stephen wasn't. So just think of the two of them side by side. There was no real investigation done by the sheriff's department. The sheriff told the DA not to screw this case up. He wanted Avery convicted of this crime. There isn't one iota of physical evidence in this case that connects Stephen Avery to it. In fact, the sheriff was told by the police, you have the wrong guy. Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. Law enforcement officers realized that they had screwed up big time. We were getting ready to bring a lawsuit. $36 million. Manitowoc County itself and the sheriff and the DA would be on the hook for those damages. They're not handing that kind of money over to Steve Avery. I did tell him, be careful. They are not even close to being finished with you. Do we have a body or anything yet? I don't believe so. We have Stephen Avery in custody, though. Are you kidding me? The disappearance of Teresa Halbach remains a mystery. Mr. Avery's blood is found inside of Teresa Halbach's vehicle. Stephen Avery will spend the rest of his life in prison. We found a key. That key was scrubbed and his DNA was placed on it. This is really strange. What's going on here? Hallbox's last stop Monday was at Stephen Avery's home. If he did this, maybe it was good he was in prison all that time. Everything I've heard him say hasn't been the truth. It was extraordinarily disturbing. We went through this 20 years ago and we're going through it now again. In this criminal justice system, good luck. You are probably the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom. The truth always comes out. Gives me the chills a little bit, doesn't it? Give you the chills when he says the truth always comes out. Of course, it makes me wonder what the truth really is, which I guess is part of the fun, if you want to call it that, of this of this series. But... So just, you guys saw it, the whole, from start to finish, right? And re-listening to that business, what, like, what jumps out at you is like, oh, yeah. I, you know, first of all, I have to give the producers, the, the, the ladies that put this program together. Yeah. I mean, however you come down on his guilt or his innocence or, or, or whether or not the state proved um, what they were supposed to do, the creativity and the cleverness and the way that these producers put this together. As I, I remember watching this, and even from the, from the, um, from the music, from the soundtrack that they start this thing, where, where uh, to me it seems like everything's just a little bit out of tune, it's a little creepy, yeah. to the way that they put that preview together, um, they were brilliant, the yeah. way that they put the timeline together. How I feel about, you know, whether or not they were completely fair in their in their in investigative journalism, and I put journalism in quotations, I'm not yeah, not quite sure about that. Really, that's 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 pretty sharp. Well, what do you mean? I mean, you, th you think now all most documentarians, I think, um, either they set out to make a point, and if they don't, they end up trying to make a point in the editing. And we all know it's very powerful. M Michael Moore has made a career out of it, right? But w were there points in the documentary where you kind of said, "Nah, I bet we're not getting the full story." I have spent a lot of time not only watching this but digging I, I did wait until I completed the whole series before I started digging and seeing sort of what the real okay or what what was left out and, and in my opinion and again spoiler spoiler alert here there was a significant amount left out by the producers significant amount of information that I think had it been presented 
would have changed the public's give us an example opinion. Um, now this is again this is this is what I've read online. I don't know. I can't say whether or not any of this is true or it's not. It's okay. We're just talking here. Um, there was something the producers didn't put in that that Stephen Avery's. Uh, DNA was found on the hood of the car, mm-hmm. um, uh, Teresa Halbach's car, and it came from sweat. And I don't know how they can determine whether it's sweat or, or, okay. or whatever else, which is apparently almost impossible to plant some, something like that, some form of DNA that comes okay. from sweat. That was not included. Another part wasn't included was the fact that supposedly Stephen Avery had a relationship with this Teresa Halbach before. See, that's the one I heard that was not so much a re- not a relationship relationship. Well, he had supposedly he had reached out to her, he had texted her, he had re- specifically requested that he she requested be the, she be the photographer that came out. Right. To, yeah, because he th- he thought she was a uh, attractive woman, right? And then I also heard that uh, I heard it was probably one of the things that you read too that there was some evidence that he, he had w- once when she came there. He had uh, opened the door wearing just a towel, and that had really creeped her out, and she didn't want to go back. That I so, hadn't heard, but yeah. yeah. So, I admit when I heard those things too, I started to go, eh. but yeah. it doesn't change whether or not yeah. the state. Proved you can kind of see why they left it out. I mean, they can say, well, what? I mean, that that's that's um, you're jumping to a conclusion if you say just because, you know. I, he, I think the DNA, you know, the sweat or what it clearly yeah. wasn't blood. Um, if there was DNA that was his in another area of the car, I think it was the latch of the car, the hood latch, that to me is something you expect that they would put in. The beating her at the door with a towel or something, that's just speculative. That's somebody that did that doesn't necessarily lead to somebody committing a horrific murder. Um, but in terms of his connection to that car and planting that, and is there an explanation for why that was there that would be plausible, um, that's something you might expect them to put in. So. Clearly, there was. They had ten hours. They didn't put everything in, but they certainly did an exceptional job. I think in marshalling this and keeping the viewer uh, on the edge of their seat. Each episode, as it went along, mm-hmm. you were more and more interested. How are they going to deal with this? And I remember sitting there saying to myself, "How are they going to deal with the blood in the car?" And then the way there was that revelation uh, again. Spoiler alert! But the revelation. You don't keep that, saying this. I'll, the, <laughs> we'll go back. And say, if you haven't seen the show yet, I don't know why you're listening to this anyway. So uh, yeah, well, we're going to terms of spoilers. Go that, ahead. that the blood, that the vial of his blood that was used to exonerate him in the rape case was found in the evidence room, and there had been a pinhole in it that would be consistent with having Tempor- perhaps extracted it from um, from with a syringe, and that was one of those aha moments. In the, in the documentary, exactly, it was exactly, and the fact that you know, again, getting more away from the did he do it or didn't he do it or did they prove it or not prove it, to me, the subplots of these things, the the legal counsel issue about the quality of the counseling, the quality investigation, the fact that the sheriff's office reportedly recused themselves, yet they were there at every significant find of the pieces of evidence, uh, I thought was astonishing and interesting, um, and a sort of a what not to do when you're conducting an investigation that you're trying to keep it clean. It's something that even I think somebody from a law enforcement perspective can look at and say, boy, that's something we may have to make sure we don't do in the future, that they can learn from this. So just to finish that thought, with the, the, what Randy, I think you said it well, Randy, but what they, when the defense attorneys go back to look at blood sample, which is supposedly, you know, my words, not legal words, but hermetically sealed in something and placed away in evidence, and it, from the prior trial, right? Because when that when they when they got took a blood sample, 
they find that, that clearly it has been ripped open. It had, the, the tape has clearly been ripped, and then there is a pinhole. So what? So, but ultimately, in the trial, the prosecution was able to put forth evidence that um, the blood that they found did not come from a syringe. Now it came from this new sophisticated test that, that uh, by the by the filmmakers' view, sort of came out of nowhere, right? But what what do you think actually happened? They, what do you, think? you know, it's interesting. They, they never a lot of the things that filmmakers don't sort of close. They don't close that loop. What happened? It is maybe they can't. Incredible yeah, yeah. moment in the in the show yeah. in the entertainment of it yeah. that they open this thing and it's everybody's got their gloves on. And it's this, mm-hmm. <laughs> this big moment and there's a pinhole. I know. In, you know, the problem is, is they don't explain, and I think that the defense attorneys had some issues with this. Whatever that, um, whatever the material is that they add to the blood to keep it from spoiling. It's a, like a preservative. A preservative yeah. isn't in the car, or at least isn't detected in right. the car, which is... Right. And then know, the FBI used, developed a test specifically to identify this, and it had been proven scientifically in the past, so there which I think at the very end of the case, the lawyers were saying, ultimately, it may be that if they, if a test is developed that is more sophisticated and, it, and that blood that is found in the car can be tied to that vial because right. of the preservative in it, well, then, then that may end up ultimately over. exonerating the same way, ironically, the he was exonerated from the DNA tests that were done on the rape case. That Right, because the, the what that final sophisticated test that, that seemed to pretty powerfully swing in favor of the prosecution that's they were testing for the essentially testing for the absent absence of a substance in other words they said we didn't find any of this preservative that would have been in the blood now as a criminal defense attorney you you doesn't that annoy you a little bit you know this it's kind of the absence of evidence right i mean it, it, it is ultimately though what really problematic and something that certainly will end up i assume in the court of appeals is whether this test is scientifically accurate. There was no right. history to it. There was no background to it. There was no uh, test that you could say it was legitimate. So there's going to be a question about the, the whether that was junk science or not and whether right. it should have been introduced in this case. And defense, point. defense, to their credit, did put on an expert that said that this doesn't really mean anything or I forget exactly what she said, but she, she discounted it. Let's uh, let's take a break here. When we come back, we're going to go, go a couple of key moments. You'll hear the actual moments from Making a Murderer and then we'll get the opinion of our experts' attorneys, Randy Chapman and Rob Mazo. By the way, check out uh, equally compelling podcast in our history, thebostonpodcast.com, thebostonpodcast.com. Check it out. Great interviews recently with people like Mike Dukakis, Bob Lobel, Emily Rooney, Boston's Best. And we also have these guys here today. So that's nice, guys. Stay with us. This is Willie Slate, and you are listening to The Boston Podcast. You suck. Listen, say who you are. Scene one, Apple, take two. This is Willie Slate, the former director of marketings and communications at Hirsch Roberts Weinstein. What are marketings? I don't. What, is that what I said? Did I say marketing? Director of marketing. <laughs> what are marketings? Max, you need to leave. Scene one, Apple, take two. This is Willie Slate, the former director of marketing and communications at Hirsch Roberts Weinstein, and you're listening to the Boston Podcast. All right. <laughs> I need the pressure. I need the pressure. Can you look at me? 
Do you want to spend the rest of your life in prison? Okay. You did a very bad thing. Yeah, but I was only there for the pleasure, though. Brendan, you haven't told me the truth yet. And what I don't want you to do right now is tell me any more lies. So you're going to make a decision before you start writing anything. You're going to write the complete truth, no matter what the truth is. Welcome back to the Boston Podcast. Listening to a clip from Making a Murderer. And uh, here with attorneys Randy Chapman and, and Rob Mazo. I'm David Yes. That clip, just hearing that clip again pisses me off. So that that's uh, Brendan Dassey, Stephen Avery's nephew, who becomes the, the uh, just a key character in the in the in this whole um, epic tale. What uh, he is the one that they pin as being an accomplice to this gruesome murder, right? The kid is he's a teenager at the time, and what you just heard was the investigator hired by Dassey, the kid's defense attorney. So essentially, he's sitting with his own client. To me, that sounded like an interrogation, like they were trying to get him just to just say you say you did it, kid. When if you just just any just common sense dictates you hear the kid's voice and you hear how well, the mental capacity that the kid has, and I don't know if he has uh, that's a, that's a diagnostic thing or not, but you can tell the kid has has trouble putting his thoughts together, right? I don't know. Did, 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 am, were you guys upset as I, I was for that? Yeah, I mean, look, he has a 72 IQ. I, right. I got what he was trying to do. Uh, I think the intent was that his lawyer had said, I want, I think your value in this case is to cooperate, and your value to cooperate would be if you admitted that you did it. And this Lee Kaczynski, the lawyer that was had hired this investigator, gave the marching orders to the investigator of get him to break down, admit that he did it consistent with his initial statement to the police, and then he'll be able to cut a deal for himself by cooperating and testifying against his uncle, Stephen Avery. Uh, that was, I think, the intention of doing it. When you listen to it, though, it's extraordinarily offensive because he's feeding him words, telling him what to draw, what to do, how to do it, what to say, and it far exceeded what I think was uh, acceptable behavior by a, a basically a defense lawyer and his investigator and in how they dealt with this young man, again, with a 72 IQ. Yeah. What do you yeah, think, Rob? No, I agree. That was one of the more detestable parts of the show, I think, to show that his own, you know, the people that were supposed to have his back uh, didn't seem to be doing that. And, and this kid's still in prison. I mean, even if we believe the worst version of the story, if we believe the worst version of the story, right, his creepy uncle invites him in where he's got this this girl tied up who he's been molesting and is about to kill. The kid has a diminished mental capacity. I hope I hope that's um, accurate. I think it is, right? And you can clearly tell that the kid, the kid, through the whole thing, I got the feeling he didn't know who was who. He doesn't know who was his lawyer, the yeah, cop who was on his side. It was right? really sad. And, and I think that the, the lawyer that came in after uh, his initial lawyer yes. was decent. He, mean, was, he was, yeah. decent, yeah. Uh, but you could still see the difference between the kind of defense that Avery had and the kind of defense yeah. that Dassey had. And it, I, I couldn't help but think, but if Dassey had the same quality attorneys that Avery had, things might have turned out differently. Because if a yeah. jury really saw what we saw with Dassey and his, and his real limited capacity and the fact that it really looked like that confession was coerced and pressured and yeah. it was a false seemed to be a false confession to me his story made no sense whatsoever right. uh, that perhaps a more skilled defense 
attorney or a defense team might have changed the outcome there. And, and that what that's the subplot that I was talking about before about how this kind of a case brings to light problems within our our system, um, and namely the difference between lawyers. And a lot of people will want to say, well, he had a, that the nephew had a court-appointed lawyer, Lee Kaczynski, and so he was um, he was at a disadvantage compared to the fact that Avery, who had taken a a civil settlement that he had obtained uh, and use it to hire really good lawyers. I look at it a little bit differently because I think that clearly Avery had better lawyers and there are better lawyers, just like there are better yeah. doctors to go to. Sure. I don't think it was a matter of simply that um, that the nephew was poor because I think, frankly, there are some extraordinarily talented, good public defenders and that a poor person actually has the resources of the state to be able to put to bear on a case. I think the person who is most disadvantaged in our criminal justice system is basically the middle class person who makes too much money to uh, to necessarily um, get a free lawyer and have all their costs paid for, but not enough money to necessarily always get the top-notch lawyer yeah. and to be able to pay for the forensic testing that you might need mm. in a case. Um, so I think that that is a subplot of this story was the problems within our system and it's inherent that there are different lawyers that way they approach the cases in different ways. It's clear, though, that I believe that his representation was so subpar that he may very well end up getting a new trial based on the ineffective assistance so of counsel. Kaczynski? Yeah, the even though they were, he yeah. wasn't his lawyer you know, at the trial, I think that what occurred beforehand so polluted the case. Didn't you guys just freak out just the mere fact that he allows the lawyer, allows his own client to be interrogated by the police with only his hired non-lawyer investigator there. I, I don't even know the investigator. not in the room, right? The mother wasn't interested really in, in staying in. She didn't know yeah. what she was doing. The lawyer clearly didn't do it. He was left out there swinging in the wind. Yeah. And I, I find that extraordinarily offensive. You really wanted to jump through the TV screen and, yeah. and basically choke the lawyer that was saying, why are you doing this? I mean, this was just, it was just horrible the way in which he was representing this That's, young man. I mean, that's, that to me is... Um, go ahead, Rob. No, I'm not positive, yeah. Randy, but I think that Dassey may have exhausted his... I, I mean, those pretrial issues, the pretrial motions that I'm sure would have been filed or not filed, I, I think that those issues have been dealt with on appeal. He, and, well, his last appeal was, I, I think, was January 1st, 2013. They rejected his request for a yeah. new trial. So presumably it would it would require some new... New evidence, right? Well, was um, it the trial, the trial, or the appeals court that did it? And you court always, of appeals. Okay, and then you yeah. always have appeals to the federal court on a writ of habeas corpus. His appeals, I think, it's highly unlikely that they're completely exhausted. That there's finality here. Obviously, if there was new evidence that could be brought to bear, that would be helpful. Um, it seems as though, unlike Avery's case, which whether you believe it was planted or not, there was forensic support for the conviction. Yeah. Um, his conviction seemed to have been based almost entirely upon his own statement mm -hmm. um, in his proximity and his knowledge of the fact that Stephen Avery was there. So um, his case, I think, is, is more infirm, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, and more subject to collateral attack than would be necessarily Stephen Avery's. I mean, that kid, uh, Dassey, um, again, I'll repeat it, I think, just at, at, even at worst, even assuming this horrible thing happened to uh, Teresa Halbach, He's an accomplice, he, you know. He and and most likely, and it, I felt like there was some suggestion suggestions of evidence that um, Dassey was kind of under the thumb of, of Avery, and that even he had been abused by him. Did you hear that, Rob? Did you no, see in the, any of your research? Yeah. Uh, I say abuse. It was it was along the lines of uh, some might call it sort of 
heavy horsing around, but but um, but put his hands on him, and um, so who knows what that dynamic was like. And that kid, he's he's eligible for parole in 2048. So that that's um, let's see if he was roughly about I believe it was about 17 when he went in. Um, he's going to be in his 50s, I think. I'm probably doing the math wrong. I think I heard that. You know, it, I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. So, it, like, that's his life, you know? When you say that he was under the influence of Stephen Avery yeah. and under his thumb, if you will, he was under the thumb of whoever the last person to talk to him That's was. right. Yeah. He, he was subject to any suggestion from anybody about anything. Uh, it's clear that he certainly had a limited capacity. He had uh, there were issues regarding his, you know, his upbringing. He was living in a very difficult situation at best so I think if there's any sympathy that's going to be given out here it probably has to be at least uh, at some level for him right yeah um, let's listen to one more clip from Making a Murder one of the things road patrol officers frequently do is call into dispatch and give the dispatcher the license plate number of a car they've stopped or a car that looks out of place for some reason, correct? Yes, sir. And the dispatcher can get information about to whom a license plate is registered. Yes, sir. If the car is abandoned or there's nobody in the car, the registration tells you who the owner presumably is. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to listen, if you would, to a short phone call. Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, this is Lynn. Lynn. Hi, Andy. Can you run Sam William Henry 582? Um, okay, it shows that she's a missing person, and it lists to Teresa Hallback. Okay. Okay, that's what you're looking for, Andy? 99 Toyota. Yep. Okay, thank you. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. What you're asking the dispatch is to run a plate that's Sam William Henry 582. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, sir. Sam William Henry would be SWH582? Yes. This license plate? Yes, sir. And the dispatcher tells you that the plate comes back to a missing person or woman? Yes, sir. Teresa Hallback? Yes, sir. And then... You tell the dispatcher, oh, 99 Toyota? No, I thought she told me that. Okay, it shows that she's a missing person, and it lists to Teresa Hallback. Okay. Okay, that's what you're looking for, Andy? 99 Toyota. Yep. Okay, thank you. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. Were you looking at these plates when you called them in? No, sir. Do you have any recollection of making that phone call? Yeah, I'm guessing 11.03.05, probably after I received a phone call from Investigator Weger letting me know that there was a missing person. Well, Investigator Weger, did he give you the license plate number for Teresa Halbach when he called you? I just don't remember the exact content of our conversation then. But he had to have given it to me because I wouldn't have had the number any other way. Well, you can understand how someone listening to that might think that you were calling in a license plate that you were looking at 
on the back end of a 1999 Toyota. Yes. But there's no way you should have been looking at Teresa Halbach's license plate on November 3 on the back end of a 1999 Toyota. I shouldn't have been and I was not looking at the license plate. Because you're aware now that the first time that Toyota was reported found was two days later on November 5. Yes, sir. So what the hell is going on there? I, 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 how do you guys interpret that? When he first caught, we, we, we were talking off mic here, just trying to figure out what happened there. It certainly seems like the defense really um, got a zinger there, right? He he calls in. The first thing he says is is he says the the digits on the plate, right? Yeah. So where is he even getting that from? I mean, my you know my. My kids, my children, I watch this with my teenage children, yeah. and they were really, this was their moment where, like, yeah. oh, my God, the, he planted the, the police, the sheriff's department planted the vehicle. And I said, well, you know, there's another thought here, and that's mm -hmm. maybe he was confirming what he already knew. Clearly, they knew that Teresa Hubbock had been missing for four or five days. They knew what kind of vehicle she had. They knew what kind of license, what her license plate was, and perhaps he was just confirming it as he was driving around you know the yeah, area. It seems a weird thing to confirm, though. Well, it would have been if I'm out there looking for, be on the lookout for this car, and he's asking, "Is it?" I just want to make sure I have the right plate number. Maybe he's looking at it's another red Toyota Rav Four, and he wants to see if that's the plate number. It it would be helpful had he remembered why it is that he did it, and given that he doesn't remember, it leads you to conclude that there was something amiss. Frankly, I think when you, if that was the only piece of evidence there was it would be dismissed. You have to look at it in a global fashion and look at it in the context of all the other things. The fact that he was the one that was there, it was him, uh, was that there was when, the, when the, okay, his partner, who was also being sued, uh, was the one that found the key uh, that was that went to the car after all the repeated searches. That he, his pres their presence seemed to be so close to everything and had access to the blood samples that when you put it in that context, it's another piece of evidence that goes with a bunch of other pieces of evidence. And so I think that that's really why this had more power than it would if you just offered it in some other random murder case. It really was, it fit into the theory of the of the defense that he was being set up. Right. And in a visceral sense, it just, it, it comes on like a, a ton of bricks. And of course they had the creepy evil music below it as right. they play back the right. testimony. But I but guess not, not. Coburn, Sergeant Coburn was there you saw him constantly when there was a perp walk yeah. uh, with the nephew. <laughs> he was, He's there. He was, He's standing in the back during the verdict. He was so deeply involved in the case mm -hmm. that it created this this aura um, that he was. It was win at all costs, and well, he was too deeply yeah, involved. And in that's case. a credit. I mean, it's I mean, he obviously was there, but it's also credit to the way the filmmakers did it. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the way the film, the, the the detail and the uh, the research that they put into this. Yeah, it's incredible. But I, I mean, so we just uh, before we started taping the recording this. Um, Randy, you pulled up the, an interview that Stephen Colbert did with the documentarians, and um, I thought it was interesting how they answered the question, so do you think he's guilty? And the, the first woman said, uh, we should probably give them credit with the names, we'll get that in a second, but, um, but um, the, uh, what, what she said was, I feel like with, the, with everything that the, the state put on and the, and the way they put on the evidence, I would say he definitely should have been found not guilty, um, which we know as lawyers is a, is a very meaningful thing. And I think that maybe is the point of the documentary, that 
they didn't make their case, even though the jury found found him guilty. However, the the public, the curious public, and really all of us, I think, we want to know whether we really did it or not. So being found guilty and not doing it are different things. But um, I don't know. Did and you guys no, agree? It's an, it's an interesting talking point when yeah. I talk to people. My friends, as I sit around at Dunkin' Donuts in the morning and talk about you know what, what's going on in the world, it's those kinds of discussions that they don't recognize that what happens in a courtroom is not necessarily what the reality is. It's has the government proven the case beyond a reasonable doubt, which uh, you know can be contrasted and is much different than is he actually factually innocent of the case. And and certainly we're all searching for that sense of did he factually do it. But as a lawyer. I would have no problem, based on what I saw in that documentary, of him being found not guilty, even had he actually done it. Right, and it's hard right, for people right. sometimes to get their heads around. That's the hardest thing, right? And uh, yeah, do you agree, if, uh, I do agree, but I, you know, I think that if my bones, if my burnt and chopped up bones were found in the back of Randy's garage, I, I would want them to be looking pretty hard at Randy. <laughs> yeah, as you, you know, as 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 the probable guilty party. But yeah, but, that's, but, I, but that's I would have motive. <laughs> but, that's, but that's just what I would have wanted you to do exactly, because maybe exactly. I put them. There, but, you know, but but did you know? Certainly, the 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 program makes you uh, question whether or not the government sustained its burden, and, it, and 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 if everything in there is actually what happened, then they certainly didn't. This is a, a weird time to come to the defense of the legal system, but I, to to bring this back to the Patriots and Tom Brady, because everything comes back to them. I remember when the when the federal judge. Um, Ken Berman found that you know the basically the NFL's handling of the the Brady discipline for allegedly deflating footballs was a train wreck, and they did you know multiple things wrong, um, and you know uh, so therefore reversed the penalty. It, it was arbitrary or whatever the legal term was. Um, a lot of the the uh, anti Patriots you know NFL fans said, well that doesn't mean he didn't do it though, and my response to that was well. Sure, it, that doesn't, but what's the best way? The, the, our legal system tends to be the best way of us to trying to figure out whether something happened or not, um, or at least in, the, in a criminal sense, to make sure that it happened before we punish somebody. And so I said, so, you know, maybe, I mean, you could say that about, you know, anything. Yeah, Ber Berman's, you know, when Berman gets to digress to that, yeah. uh, you know, Berman really was looking, was was the process was fair? fair process, did he have yeah. fair warning about what the penalty would be if he did it? It wasn't about did he or did he not do it. Um, in this case, I think the appeals court would have to look at this and say, did he get a fair trial? Um, right. Was, was, he, was, was he adequately represented? I think Avery, it's clear to all of us that Avery wasn't represented well, the nephew not so much. Um, was there a problem with the way in which the science came in? So I still think that there are issues. This is not the last you're going to hear of the Avery case. Uh, we'll be hearing about this for years to come as new evidence perhaps surfaces, as new potential suspects come forward or identified as possible having been involved in it. Uh, so I think this process is not as far from over. And that's the important part of the, another takeaway of this is that in the interest of finality, we have to make sure we do the best we can to make sure that we get it right mm -hmm. and that it, the process was fair. And I think there's a problem here. I think we all sense there's a problem with what happened here. Well, um, you guys have both tried jury trials. I mean, how does how do and there were reports that at, at the outset the initial straw vote was to uh, acquit, and then somehow something like seven jurors got turned around. How the hell does that happen? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure. A lot of that information was coming from a juror that was dismissed. True, yeah. Uh, and uh, so we're not exactly sure, I, uh, you know, what was going on in that jury room. But they, they deliberated for something like three or four days, 20-some-odd hours of, of, of deliberations, which is, you know, a significant amount of time. Uh, you know, it is a it is a murder trial. They should be giving that and uh, the attention that that it that it warrants, and it sounds sounds like they did. But who knows what's going on in there? As more people discuss different twists and turns of the evidence and how it affected a person, um, mm. and how it, you know how somebody might might. And uh, I, I don't have a, I don't have a real problem if if there was a straw poll and it was eleven to one for an acquittal, and one person was able to persuade the other eleven. Um, I mean, I don't have a problem. That's the way our process works, and maybe that one person made so many valid points that was able to turn everybody around. You need a unanimous verdict, obviously, in a criminal case. They reached unanimity. Whether or not the information, because it's garbage in, garbage out, and if the garbage went in, then they're going to then it, it undermines the validity of the verdict, and I think that's really what you have to look at. What happened within the four corners of that courtroom? Was it fair? Was presented? How it was presented? Um, were everybody given a fair trial? Yeah, I, I think that part of probably the... Uh, issue was when the defense chose to put it all on the the setup. Yep. I, I think they're asking the jury to make an incredible instead of instead of maybe making the argument that the government just didn't prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense went with the police set him up. Yeah. They they chopped a woman up. They killed a woman. They well, set I don't know up. if they, I don't, did they well, really how, say where that. Where does the body? I mean, how does where does the body come from? They, well, where do the bones come from? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. The two possibilities, right? Either he was, they they found her missing, started to find bone fragments, and then decided to pin it on Avery, right? I don't think it, that. But I that's don't really. Think they, I think that's what sense, they're asking. The I didn't get a sense that they were claiming that the police killed her. But there, but, but that they, maybe they didn't look at other other other. That, uh, that I agree with. I, 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 but it is in his backyard, etc. Right. So maybe you know, and I'm not second guessing the, the incredible job the defense yeah. did. But when you pin it all on, this is their theory. The police had to have set him up. You're asking the jury to make an incredible... It's strange logic, and was, yeah. And Especially also, with the blood. I mean, but they don't, just, yeah. just having a picture, like the, even that evil-looking cop, Lank, who kept coming up. The creep, <laughs> by the way, before I forget, Rob, you brought up the fact that it, it's, in my words, not yours, but that this is a wonderful documentary, but it's also manipulative in, in a sort of skilled kind of way, right? I uh, so. Right. So th- remember how they kept showing the organi- organizational chart of the law enforcement officers and cops? What did that remind you of? Like, what did that look like? An organized crime. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. The, yeah. <laughs> it looked just like the Corleone family. Yeah, yeah with like Vito yeah, at the and, top, and, right? And yeah. That was intentional. I mean, that was Absolutely. Sergeant yeah. Lank, and they, you know, they yeah. made these guys into, into evil vil- characters. Right, villains, right. Yeah. So, but, but even when he was, um, Lank was on the stand, to have to picture him like sneaking into the evidence room and like even for someone that wanted to believe that this was a frame job, that's kind of hard to... Imagine, right? Except yeah. they did it in the rape. I mean, except that they did it in the rape. Th- you know, the, the jury, I guess, assume heard the evidence that they set him up for the rape case. But but not with blood. They didn't plant no, blood. No, but, it, but the they scene, could but see that this police, that this sheriff's yeah. department was capable of. of well, I, I think they, they um, you know, it's the old, um, uh, that sort of horrible mode of thinking that, it, you know, if he didn't do this, he did something else because he is such a bad guy. I mean, I mean the more you kind of listened and, and read between the lines, you know the Avery family was were the the black sheep's of the black sheep of the community, right? They were they were bad people. They were low lifes, you know, um, and so they were the first 
place people would look if something bad happened. That they didn't say that explicitly, but I got that feeling. So, so that's that's that sort of um, you know um, pit you get in your stomach when you start to realize maybe all these these convictions were all you know sort of assumptions run run rampant. You know, one one interesting issue that I think they raised didn't develop it completely. I'd be curious how it sort of plays out in the appeals courts over the next years was the bit of an anomaly of uh, in this in Wisconsin that you're not allowed to identify who you believe might possibly be the, the person who committed the murder. So they were left with saying the police set it up, but not being able to possibly answer the question that Rob raised of like, well, did the police murder or did somebody else? Um, because of sort of some evidentiary rules, they weren't able to, they had someone who I think they felt was possibly the suspect, could have been a, a brother of his or some other family member, and that it got stuck onto Stephen. But it could have very well been that she was murdered on the property and somebody else, his brother, I believe. So is, is that different in Mass, in Massachusetts? Yeah, I think that the, that the standard to introduce that kind of evidence wouldn't be as high as it is in Wisconsin or almost impossible the way they made it sound in Wisconsin. Um, you know, you'd be able to raise the issues with the jury in Massachusetts, assuming you have a good faith basis to raise it. Um, so, it sounded so, like so, it was almost impossible to do that. And I don't know the standard in Wisconsin, yeah. but the way it was... The way it was portrayed was it's really almost unless you have you know photographic evidence of this person doing it you can't do what used to be called on boston legal the plan b, plan b. where you plan want to plan b. b the guy you know right else. so i mean yeah if if the defense had evidence that they saw a guy fleeing from the scene that night that and could establish who that was and that it wasn't or that it was not stephen avery that might be you know again yeah. i don't know what the finer points right. of wisconsin law in massachusetts i would expect that to come in in Wisconsin, it sounds as though you'd need even more than that. Yeah. So these lawyers at the end, in sort of what I thought was a pretty poignant moment at the end, when all the lawyers got together and were just sort of, um, you know, reflecting on the on the case. One of the lawyers, um, I don't remember which one it was, but he said, "I it, it, there's a part of me that hopes it might have even been Dean Strang, but it said, part of me hopes that Stephen Avery is guilty, because I I can't." Um, and I'm paraphrasing, but I can't stomach the, I can't live with the, the idea that he is not guilty, that he didn't do this, and that he is serving the rest of his life. So, have you ever, have you guys ever, you've guys both tried uh, cases in front of a jury and had wins, had losses? I assume you've had a couple losses over the years. So you call them losses, you know, whatever, guilty findings. Have you ever had one like that where you're just like, geez, they got it wrong? I, I, I can't say I've had that one. There were yeah. times where I disagree with the jury result um, that I thought that they hadn't proven the case, but not. But ultimately, I mean, what was said there was something I just said as I was doing the, some legal analysis on NECN about yeah. uh, Bill Cosby. As I saw him doing that perp walk, I said, I really hope that he did this because I'd hate to see this poor guy going through this if he truly was innocent of the of the offense. And I think that's just almost human nature. You don't yeah. want to see somebody go through that kind of hardship uh, of being incarcerated twice if, for crimes that he didn't commit. So in some ways, you hope that he really did do it and that the system somehow got it right, even though the evidence may have been questionable. You think Bill Cosby's innocent? I think that's <laughs> what he just said, right? There's kind of a lot of evidence it's seeming, well, let's not, Cosby's a different show. Rob, what, what, what were you going to say? Know, I think that uh, my experience with juries is that, while I've been disappointed, certainly, in some verdicts. For the most part, I think juries, you know, take it take their job very very seriously they tend to in my experience get it right even if I'm disappointed with the outcome it, you know upon reflection it, it, it seems that they they uh, 
They tend to get the What about this one, right. though? This one, you know, clearly we saw what happened in Stephen Avery's rape case, that they got it wrong. They got it wrong. Right, yeah, and, they, yeah. and the witness herself, the victim herself, got it wrong. She feels she, she feels, got it wrong, she's, yeah. And yeah. she's, you know, she's obviously devastated by, by you know, by what happened. In, in the murder case, you know. What, what by the way, said, I, I keep interrupting you, Rob, but think of how weird it would be to be that woman. That's uh, Penny, she's, Penny uh, Ann Bernstein, who was... Yep. Who was who was who was you know brutally raped and beat up it's and an, and Avery it's served incredible. <laughs> Think about that. To be hurt, he serves eighteen years for doing it. Turns out he's not the guy that do it that did it. They got they eventually got the guy that did it right. Yep. Um, he confessed. And, yeah, and then she she's she feels horrible because she took away helped take away eighteen years of this guy's life, and then two years later he's accused of some other horrible thing. Yeah. She must not know how to feel. She re- she rejects she re- uh, declined to be interviewed as part of Anatomy uh, this Anatomy show murder. making this show, a murder. Yeah. murder. Uh, she feels, according to the, the interviews and the reviews that I've seen, she's she's you know sickened by what happened. She said that she had made a conscious effort when she was being attacked to memorize and study the person's face. And apparently she had a completely different description than what Stephen Avery's description was. I mean, she's she was she was caught up in the system too. Right? Yeah, right, um, right. She's apparently involved in the Innocence Project herself. That she's, really, she's written Stephen an apology. Wow. Uh, Stephen apparently has, has forgiven her. Um, doesn't wow. blame her for for what happened. No the problem, the problem that she just, lives with this that this man did eighteen years for something. Yeah. When we talk about you know the system and how good it is, and and I do think that it's the best in the world. You have to recognize though that that the system works on the assumption that the people that are prosecuting the case are doing so in a legitimate manner. Mm. And when there, if there is in fact wholesale manufacturing of evidence, it corrupts the process all the way through. Sure. And the jury could listen to this evidence and if believed, as in more often than not, it's correct, they legitimately found DNA evidence of his in the car or something. If that's to be believed, then the jury verdict was actually the correct verdict based upon the evidence that was being gotcha, introduced. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, again, it's the corruption of the process in the investigation stage that can cause, that can taint the jury verdict and the validity of it. Yeah, yeah. So um, we were talking earlier about, you know, uh, other people that might have done it. There are... I mean, the internet has absolutely exploded over this case and the show, and there are all kinds of theories as to if Stephen Avery didn't do it, who did do it. Um, so I thought we might throw out a couple of wacky theories. I mean, I heard, I've heard that, um, let's see, uh, Brendan Dassey's brother might have been involved. He was the one, he, that, that, it was his brother, right? He took the stand and he, he testified. about the first about, witness in the Right, case. what happened that day. Someone said that he was suspicious and there was evidence against him. Other members of the Avery family might have actually been involved. Um, but the weirdest one is one that, Randy, you, you called our attention to earlier today. And um, tell us about that one. Well, there is uh, somebody by the name of Ed Edwards who was... Admittedly, he he's, he's since yeah. passed away, yeah. and he was from the 1950s on was a the serial the most one of the biggest serial murderers supposedly in America that no one knew about, yeah. um, and wrote books about it. And part of what he allegedly did, and there's one author who has become an expert in his uh, his crimes. His mo would be that he would commit these crimes on Halloween, oftentimes, which I think this one was and would oftentimes set people up for the crimes that he committed. 
and he somehow, I think probably, and probably intellectually was a genius, and he would lead the police in a direction and somebody else would be convicted of this, the crimes that he committed. And there was some claim uh, that in this documentary, there's a, there's a shot of the prosecutors talking in the hallway that he might be standing in the background. Yeah. And a lot of times he would like these fire, people who light fires and watch them, he would stay around and, and be involved somehow in the trial and perhaps the search party afterwards. Oh, man. And so, the, you know, it, the guy clearly was a pathological murderer. Whether he was involved in this, I think is going to require a lot more of an investigation than what's been done so far. But we will see conspiracy theories, as we've heard of the many different people who have supposedly were involved in the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> this has raised a lot of people's interest, and people will try to come up with other possible suspects. This fall, yeah, this might fall into the category of the people who thought that the the dog might be a sp- suspect in the the murders that O.J. Simpson got uh, convicted right. or, or accused of. of the dog. Yeah, <laughs> right. But you know, um, yeah, this guy Edward Wayne. Edwards, and if you, uh, I wish we had better information, but if you Google it, you'll find it. And um, there's uh, an interview with the, the author that you were talking about. Anyway, the point is it directs your attention to a particular moment in making a murderer. And I, I want to say the sixth episode where the the prosecutor, uh, what's his name, Kurtz, Keith uh, Kratz, what's his name? Uh, Ken Kratz. Ken Kratz. I think it's him. He's talking to someone sort of in the courtroom hallway. And in the background, you see this guy that's just kind of lurking there. And the theory is that this guy could could resemble this, this Ed Edwards guy. Uh, uh, of course, the rebuttal was, well, it's Wisconsin. And it's, a, you know, a, a, a middle, a uh, aging, you know, portly, gray-haired guy. They're, it's not exactly they're a rarity in Wisconsin. Sorry, Wisconsin. But, uh, but, but. If there's something to that, that's got to be the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Because there is a guy standing there, and he's just kind of he leering. You they know? said in the in the um, if you you can listen to it on YouTube, and yeah. the author who's become an expert in him said actually he had lost the tops of two of his fingers in his hand, and he can't make out his right hand in oh the my video. God. But if there was some way to <laughs> oh identify that, you know, I listened to this thing today, and I was yep. look very skeptical of this guy's theory. I mean, he's selling a book, or he has a book about this guy. And it seemed to me like he was pitching his book. He's also yep. he supposedly saw the same guy in the background of. Um, of the uh, Damien Eccles uh, documentary, uh, you know, who was yeah. accused years ago and was supposedly falsely accused and was um, uh, was was acquitted of that, and it just seemed to be a far-fetched. This guy's like the criminal Forrest Gump. He just shows up. Shows at up these, you know, these moments. Right. So, uh, uh, Randy Chapman, Rob Mazza, you've been very generous with your time. Um, either that, or you have nothing better to do today. But um, so, just. To, to close out, let's uh, let's do let's do two things in, the, in this you know compelling documentary that we that uh, I, I feel like I want to go back and watch it again because I feel like there are things that I missed, um, but I have to get through watching Breaking Bad for the third time. Uh, but uh, so let's do le- uh, least favorite guy or gal and most favorite character in the um, anyone who appears at all in the in the in the documentary. So, Randy, you want to go first? What, what do you want to do, best or worst first? I'll do the worst. I, the, I mean, I, who's I, the worst guy? As a defense lawyer, I have to go Len Kaczynski. Kaczynski, I thought you were going to say him. Just, it's, it's so bad and so deficient and so offensive to everything that every good re- defense lawyer represents that he's the one that should have jumped out at me. And, you know, um, you would think that eventually he would have sort of sharpened up and sort of uh, figured out that the cameras are rolling this whole time, and like, like 
think what you say before you say it, right? Yeah. Rob, how about you? Who's the worst guy? I think, uh, what was the DA? Kratz? Ken, Ken, Ken Kratz, Ken Kratz, yeah. I mean, he was, he, I thought he was arrogant. I thought he was pompous. And then the way that they closed out his story, yep. uh, you know, with his um, um, texting, I guess, a victim of a domestic assault and battery. Sexting. Was he sexting? Yeah, he was and then, sexting. Yeah. And then he uh, seems to have admitted now that he had some sort of an uh, some sort of an issue with uh, this is all, again from the internet, so alleged prescription medication problems. So I, right. I wasn't a fan of his. I thought yeah, was, that that was even though it, it didn't have much to, his his um, misfortune that had nothing to do we think with the Avery case. Uh, it was it seemed to be sort of poetic justice that that uh, a guy who was seemingly pretty slimy. Um, kind of got his my least favorite guy i think is the investigator and i don't have his name here he's the investigator hired by len kaczynski but one moment we didn't talk about was towards the end of the documentary when they kind of swing back to him and and talk to him uh that was in the in the it was a proceeding about uh about kaczynski's fit fit fitness as a lawyer is that what you call it whatever um anyway they uh, about his the his defense and it was the part where he he said he had put out ribbons on the table about yeah, the victim was that, he that was, was crying and, and he started crying he was breaking down and at first you think oh emotional guy and then you think well wait a minute he he's crying for the victim he's not crying for his own client so here he is a guy who's i mean yeah great that you're a sweet guy you you cry over uh, you know someone who got killed but his job there was to was to was to defend the poor kid cry for the poor kid that that you essentially put in jail for 40 years or whatever all right, who's your favorite guy? Randy, you get to go first. Again. Well, I, I seem it's, it's hard to, for me not to look at the two defense lawyers. I'll give them yeah. co-credit because I think they were both exceptional. Uh, Dean Strang and uh, Jerome, Jerome Budding. I thought they were, they were in the finest tradition of criminal defense lawyers that showed that they, uh, they zealously represented their client to the, uh, to the fullest extent of the law, to their best of their abilities. And I think that they show what a good defense lawyer can do and how important a role they play in a system when everything else is stacked against you, yep. that they are the thing that separates you from the arbitrary and capricious behavior of the government. And so uh, in this particular case, I think they were the heroes. Do you know there, there's a, a curious um, fascination among young women towards Dean Strang on the Internet? I kid you not. The, 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 he, is a new, he is a sex symbol. Now, <laughs> I can see so that. Randy, so that that could be you in the future. I'm just saying, Rob, who is your favorite guy? Uh, it has to be Stephen Avery's uh, father and his parents, really. Oh, that was mine. You took mine. Oh, no, sorry. Was, he, I mean, he not only brought sort of you know comic relief, I guess, to something that's not yeah. particularly funny, but he was he was a funny guy. Uh, he had tremendous and um, unconditional love for his for his son and and his his mother too. Quiet woman, but clearly had. Uh, uh, undying devotion to, to her son. Um, I thought they were great characters, uh, and uh, he was probably my favorite. Well, he, he he's a real person. He's not a character. Well, well, I guess he is a character, yeah. but he but he um, he um, yeah. I, I agree. Just and, and and I just sympathize with the guy because he, he hung in there, and the, he you know he and you see him working in the garden and doing puttering around and doing whatever he's doing, and it makes me sad to think he's still doing that. You know, and his 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 son. Um, is still doing time and yeah. probably will for a long, long what time. What was that place? Forty acres of dead of cars. What, what? What is that thing that they're, <laughs> that they're running yard. over there? Yeah. How do you? How do? I'd like to know what the business model is for a salvage yard. <laughs> like what? How, like so? You, 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 they pay you to junk the stuff, right? 
yes. But why do why didn't he why didn't he wreck the car? Why didn't he smash the car? He had the car crusher, right? He did, yeah. he did lean some branches up against it. <laughs> he did <laughs> against the car. Yeah. No one will find this. That <laughs> I know. I know. But when? Yeah. When was the car found? By the way, how many days? It was a few days afterwards, right? Around November. So, so yeah, the the murder occurs on Halloween, and then they find it on a November fifth. That's five days later. So that is a little weird, right? Like he 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 did he think the car was never going to get found ever? I don't know. Anyway, um, no, he was in custody, though. When, when did he go into custody? Like, right uh, after Halloween. All right, I'm just continuing this. But, but let me ask you guys one more question. Is it all, um, if a guy committed that, is it all incongruous that if a guy committed that vicious, a sexual assault and a murder, that he would have zero record of any um, misbehavior in prison? Where, let's face it, he spent a lot of his adult life. You know what I'm saying? I don't. I wouldn't put a lot of weight because you don't know yeah. what you know. There could have been misbehavior that wasn't punished, or was punished on the cell block area, or was taking care of the inmates themselves. I think the fact that he was involved in some behavior beforehand, this burglary and the, I think torturing and burning animals, um, does not mitigate well in favor in his favor. Listen, uh, you th- you throw one oil soaked cat into a fire and you're a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> No, I agree. That that was a little disturbing detail. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not going to cut that out, Randy. <laughs> no, I'm the one who said it, not you. Um, yeah. So, um, what would be? Is there any denouement to close out? Is there any like denouement that would satisfy us? Do you? Would you? Would you? Is there any way there will be like a legit follow up to this, or it just kind of is what it is? Does require that you define what denouement is? <laughs> well, some change in their circumstances of the. I think Randy said it earlier. I think if this if this testing, if this you know, just like DNA has has advanced, um, if this testing of the whatever the um, the blood, the, the supposedly blood, planted blood, yeah, yeah, if there was some way to get a confirmation that that was you know came from him directly or didn't, I think that, that would be a fine ending. There's going to be a lot of very good lawyers now as a result of this documentary that'll be picking over the record here, making sure that every. Uh, every I was dotted, every T was crossed, and in a, in a real way, uh, these innocent projects that are going to be involved in this case. So I firmly believe that if there is something scientifically that is going to prove his innocence, mm-hmm. that over time that will come to light. Wait a minute, I just found that they, uh, they dotted a T and crossed an I. It was a mistake. New trial. Anyways, thank you, Randy Chapman and Robert Mazo. Uh, where can we find you guys? You, you, Rob, what's the URL of your website when people are looking for help when there's been an accident? We do, uh, or it's helpinginjured.com. Helpinginjured.com. Check them out. Find attorney Robert Mazo. Randy, how about you? Chapmandefense.com. Oh, you guys are so smart. You got the cool uh, the cool URLs. Um, just like thebostonpodcast.com, where you can find all the past episodes. I'm David Yaz, and uh, for Rob Mazo and uh, Randy Chapman. Uh, We say, keep the peace, everybody. Believe in the system. It's not always right. And in this case, it might not have been right. But we thank you for listening. And uh, by the way, Making a Murderer on Netflix is not not a sponsor of this program at all. Maybe you should be. Anyway, join us next time on the Boston Podcast. See ya.